Uh, the talk tonight is about the paradox of our spiritual life, learning how to balance uh, very different kinds of attention and energies, balancing our understanding of love and interconnectedness and how to connect in this world, and how to be detached, how to live our life with more and more wisdom <coughs> and understanding. And this, is, this paradox is something that we need to learn how to balance in the course of a moment, or the course of a day, or the course um, of relationships and friendships, in the course of a lifetime. And I think it's helpful to sometimes um, appreciate that often these two different kinds of energies does feel like a paradox at times to us. Um, And usually on retreats we'll have a sense that when those two energies come together it will feel like a peak experience. And then we'll get attached. You know, and we'll think that we should have those energies balanced all the time. (coughs) In the course of really allowing the universe to touch us more and more deeply, I think that we come to uh, see this paradox more and more clearly. And also I think that the commitment to understand these energies and also the commitment to balance them deepens in us. Last year at this retreat, in one of my last groups, (coughs) a woman, a new student, uh, said that she she admitted that she came to the retreat because she had to do a hundred hours of meditation to graduate from a massage school. (laughs) (laughs) And she figured the retreat would cover it. And I teased her and I said, are you counting the sleeping time (laughs) on the retreat (laughs) as your hours? But it was very interesting because it was almost in spite of herself that she started to grasp the power of this practice. Uh, And she said at the end of her saying that, she said, you know, it was was very innocent. It's like, you know, I think this this stuff is a good idea. And then everyone in the group started laughing, you know, and it's like, I said, well, it's, yeah, it's a great idea, but we have to, like, practice it. <laughs> you know, so we will have this amazing sense that this is a great idea, uh, but, <laughs> but really being able to understand what love really is, to be able to connect with it and, and practice that, and really knowing what wisdom is, being able to connect with that and practice that. You know, the habit of disconnection uh, is so strong. And, and it, what's simple is that all it takes is remembering. You know, it's remembering to reconnect. Remembering to reconnect. Remembering to reconnect. So the good news <laughs> is that it's that simple. Um, but the hard part is that there's this paradox of balancing love and wisdom, connection and detachment. Srinazargadatta Maharaj, uh, this uh, guru from India who is not alive anymore, said that love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flow. 
you know, and what a, what an aspiration, <laughs> never mind, you know, our moment-to-moment experience. Love and wisdom are both ways to understand the truth of life, and spiritual skill is learning to value both paths of love and wisdom. So between the two, my life flows. Uh, what helps that to happen is that understanding purifies love, and love purifies understanding. Understanding purifying love, meaning that love without understanding so easily becomes attached. It so easily becomes clinging. (coughs) Love purifies understanding. Understanding, you know, that without love, detachment can also become indifference. You know, somebody will seem so equanimous, but you know they're not there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it's so frustrating because they can look so good. <laughs> they look so, you know, we're the ones who are upset and they look so balanced. And yet you sense there's something wrong <laughs> with the picture. <laughs> so love tells me um, everything means we understand the truth of interconnect- interconnectedness with all life. Sometimes that Thich Nhat Hanh calls it the spirit of interbeing. It's a feeling of not being separate. And most of us know that without love, babies will die. You know, it's like without love, you know, emptiness becomes hollow. And we're afraid of it because it'll feel like the detachment is leading to annihilation. And we don't trust it because there has to be something holding the fabric of the universe. So love is really the container for the emptiness. Understanding the truth of emptiness, meaning wisdom tells me I'm nothing, is really understanding the truth of how life is from this other perspective of detachment. And mindfulness practice, mindfulness meaning a soft readiness. It's, it's just a soft readiness for anything to happen. And the reason that we need that is because the truth is that anything can happen. And this is the part of life that we don't like. We do really tend to like love tells me I'm everything, right? <laughs> you know, we, we tend to like that a lot. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing, you know, depending on the type. <laughs> Some people like that better. But it's a little harder to um, even want to understand that, never mind letting ourselves really deeply immerse ourselves in that. So this practice is meant to help us have insight into the three characteristics of the truth of life, insight into change, aranicca, insight into dukkha, which is often quite hard to translate without using a lot of words. It's often translated as suffering. But remember that dukkha happens because of change. It's this profound uncertainty that we never know what's going to happen, that we can't control most of what's happening. Anatta, uh, 
Again, these are not such easy words to translate because atta is self, anatta means non-self. Uh, but if we look closely, which is what this practice, a lot of it, the mindfulness practice is about, is being able to see very clearly that if you look very closely, like at a breath, or a sound, or a thought, that it's without substance. You know, isn't it amazing how powerful thoughts are? But if you look at them closely, they're the most ephemeral appearances <laughs> possible. You know, and yet, how much do we still get uh, this place of so believing them, so identified with them? And it's very simply being able to see it that clearly, that it's just this ephemeral, <laughs> substanceless appearance. When we have the perspective of wisdom, we start to see that nothing is worth being attached to. And so the, the, the letting go of uh, uh, grasping, the unwinding, the unbinding, it happens out of this seeing clearly. It's not like a forced letting go. It's like, of course you wouldn't hold on to something that's substanceless. It's not worth it. And it, you know, it's like in this, in this wisdom, we just let life be. And sometimes it'll feel like we go through a dark night of the soul, if it's new to us, that the sense of what we call me or I or mine is substanceless. <laughs> but it's not meant to annihilate. This understanding is meant to help us see, just in terms of the body, earth, air, fire, water, that we're all sharing it. We're all sharing this transforming process of earth, air, fire, water. We're all sharing this transforming process of emotion and thought. So we're really, literally, not getting rid of anything with this understanding. But that's what we tend to be afraid of. So you can see, just in this explanation, how much metta we do need to keep having the courage to face the emptiness. You know, there's that paradox, but the balance. The description that the Buddha gave of loving-kindness, or the experience of loving-kindness, is being um, when a mother cow gives birth to her newborn calf and makes that connection, makes that, you know, um, natural connection. You know, we all know <laughs> the labor, you know, just to think of the labor, never mind the pregnancy, of what it takes to give birth to a being in this world, and how precious that is. And parents know, all mothers know, that when you give birth, we know that we're giving birth into this incredible range of joy and sorrow in this world, especially for cows. <laughs> you know, I mean, when you think about this, I th I'm always just uh, so impressed that this was the metaphor that the Buddha gave, because really, it's not an easy life, you know, and the animal world. And so this newborn moment is what he was describing. It's, this just, it's just this natural, total wishing well, knowing that this being will face the vicissitudes of life. But can we just, that it's that pure wishing well. 
And it's, there's no attachment to the result of the wish. So the purity or the understanding that permeates that love is understanding that we can't control the result of the wish. You can you know, wish yourself well, wish others well, but we also know that we can't control the unfolding of life. That there will be, I mean, how many human beings experience just pleasure their whole lives? That isn't, that isn't possible. Of course, we would wish that for our child, but we can't totally protect anyone from that. When we say the phrases to ourselves when we're doing the loving-kindness practice, over time, our understanding, our wisdom practice will permeate those phrases. It'll permeate our wishes so that there's less and less um, control with the love. We know how painful it is when we're, someone's acting like they love us, but it's really control. We know how painful it is when we try to control others with our love. And it's really when we lack that understanding or detachment. All beings who take birth in this world face mortality. We face impermanence. And there's a a kind of poignant, aching beauty in the preciousness of the gift of life. It's like it's so um, poignant and it's so precious, this birth. I grew up um, in a way that I wasn't very close to cows or sheep or ducks. Um, And when I um, was about 21, I moved my sister's three kids and some friends up to northern Maine to, you know, homestead, live off the land, do all, um, grow all our food. I picked the wrong climate. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it it was a really wonderful experience, um, not without its pains. And none of us had had a cow, and we had this cow. And then the cow had a baby. <laughs> uh, and we couldn't deal with all the milk. I mean, it was just so much milk. And you know, I made <laughs> yogurt, cottage cheese, cheese, quiches, quiches, quiches. You know, I mean, it was just, we were giving it away. We just couldn't keep up with it. And mm, the people, you know, we all had divided labor. And I had bees, and somebody had ducks, you know. And the people who, the the people in the group that had the cows didn't want to be tied to it anymore in terms of two, and so they decided to give this baby cow away. Um, and you know, we weren't a huge farm; it was just mother. Her name was April, was the mother, and Coco was the baby. And they waited. These friends of mine waited a year before they gave the baby away, and it seemed like, you know, reasonable. <sighs> And, you know, somebody came and bought this cow, and April cried and cried and cried. It was one of the most painful things I've ever lived through. It was months. She cried for months. And that's also a place where I really started to appreciate, in retrospect, because I hadn't heard the Buddha's teaching about this metta being this experience of a mother cow with a newborn calf. Um, but, it, you know, it's like we tend to feel superior <laughs> to the animal world. And I, I was so 
moved by that. It's just like that connection was so deep. When we practice the loving-kindness, this wishing well, it's just that pure wish, it's, it's about the transformation of our own heart. So remember, it's not about the result of our wishes. And when we're caught up in the result of our wishes, we know <laughs> we need some understanding. We need more mindfulness to balance that. When, when the loving-kindness is pure, when it's very deep, it'll feel like there's no giver and no receiver. So that sense of separation in this practice, the, the duality breaks down in that way, and it feels wonderful. That purity is very purifying. So even if you've touched into this purity of connection for a few moments, often it's meant to purify, meaning that what isn't loving-kindness will appear. So the opposite of loving-kindness is anger, the experience that will feel so much like metta or loving-kindness, but isn't, is, is all the aspects of neediness or longing or attachment or clinging um, or lust, uh, you know, that kind of um, romanticized or sentimental love, wanting approval. Sometimes people will be surprised if they do a lot of loving-kindness practice that suddenly this other stuff gets more visible. So, you know, it's not a mistake. You know, it's meant, we're meant to um, have those become more visible over time, and that's when you use the mindfulness practice to go through those experiences with more attention so that we learn not to be so um, overcome or swung by them. So this doesn't mean that those experiences are wrong. They're human. We're in the human world, and you know, we learn how to work with them, not to get rid of them. And this is really important, this sense of learning how to have skill with working with them when they come up. So self-love is holding um, the preciousness of our own heart. And it means that as we develop that, we're less dependent on another being to hold that preciousness for us. Meaning less dependent. It doesn't mean that we don't yearn or long for that. Uh, We long for someone to know us or to connect with that preciousness, but we're not dependent on it. And so you know that we long for that connection with ourselves. We can't control it, but when it happens, it's wonderful. You can see if you tried to control it, it wouldn't be love. And it's the same with another. It's like if we want someone to connect with us or know us or whatever it is, we might long for it. But actually, the trying to control it, again, we think that's love, but it isn't. It's not allowing life to just be. And those moments will come out of the purity of the connection, not out of wanting it to happen. And this is hard for us. 
So this is where that balance of detachment, wisdom, letting life be, comes into the development of love. This is a a haiku from Basho, um, from the ancient days of Japan. His spiritual practice was doing these long pilgrimages in Japan. He said, even in Kyoto, hearing the cuckoos cry, I long for Kyoto. <laughs> Doesn't that seem familiar? <laughs> I mean, it, it, sometimes haiku like this, you know, you know you're understanding something, but it, it, it's kind of mysterious. Even in Kyoto, hearing the cuckoos cry, I long for Kyoto. You know, sometimes we're so close to being so purely connected and then we, it, you know, we, we're connected and then we grasp for it. You know, it's, that's what this means. The paradox within this that I find is that if I try to kill that longing within myself, I'm dead. And this is, you know, but if you're, if you're willing to feel it, you're alive. But sometimes it really aches because we want more connection with ourselves and others than we really get. Yeah. So you, 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 know, you try to kill it and that doesn't work, but then you open to it and you feel vulnerable. But that vulnerability is life itself, that uncertainty, and that willingness to just be, be with that. It just takes so much courage and detachment and connection to live like this. So it's really the mindfulness the soft readiness that makes space for us to receive the connection with ourselves or others or a moment when it's possible. That's when we are touched by the universe, but we really can't control it. That's the truth of change. That's the truth of dukkha. That's the truth of anatta. I mentioned in my last talk that um, I had raised my sister's children when I was quite young. And then at a certain point, when I got involved with this meditation, I started realizing that I also had to um, (laughs) uh, do more of my own life as well. And that that separating process was quite difficult for me um, and necessary. So I hadn't... um, I had spent some years not being as close to these uh, three, three children. And my youngest nephew, mm, he got married recently, and there was a reception. And I never have really, had never talked to uh, these children about our experiences together and how it was. Um, so at the reception, this was, it was really amazing to me. They all circled around me and hugged me and thanked me. You know, and that they didn't have an easy childhood, and it just was amazing to me that they were mature enough to see see the scene clearly, and to to just really thank me. And I was crying, and um, and I said to them, you know, it was it's just it, I just it's the it's that connection is so pure. It wasn't like I didn't even feel like they needed to thank me. You know, when there's a connection that's so pure, it just you just love. You don't there's no there's no attachment to result. And then um, 
But in those moments, I realized that in many ways, I had known that they needed me, but I never realized that I needed them. And it was, you know, I was very young, but it was such an insight. It's like, I need them. I want to be around them. You know, it's like, um, and it was great to see that reciprocalness in my heart um, happen. So as I was driving uh, back to teaching the three-month retreat, I was feeling so full in that purity of connection. And there was this balance happening, you know, those peak experiences in life. And I'm driving along. And suddenly it was like this ache in my heart. And then, you know, it was like, oh. And, and I was watching that fullness starting to disappear. You know, and I knew that clinging was going to happen, <laughs> but I, it was just, so, it was so slow. First I was noticing that fullness, and I didn't quite notice the pleasure of it. Then I noticed this ache come in. Then I noticed, oh, I'm missing them. And then sadness. And then I noticed this clinging come. And I'm not saying we demonize these experiences. We discern the difference. It's like that isn't the lo- that isn't the love. That isn't the purity of the connection. That's the <laughs> that's that's when we cling to it. Do you see the difference? And that's where we get caught, and that's where we suffer. Um, but then the good news again is that we bring mindfulness to that, or we can bring metta to that. But we just let that longing happen. And it was okay. And it just, that appeared and disappeared, you know, and it was fine. One of the teachings for me in that was that it's okay to separate. You know, and, and for all of us, I think we are strong or weak in one. It's easier for me to connect, it's harder to separate. For some people, it's easier to connect, uh, separate or detach. But really, our work is to bring those into an equality of dialogue and equality of balance. So when difficult experiences arise or emotions arise, it's possible to have the mindfulness appear, but also with the loving-kindness. It's like the flavor of it in it, or we bring the loving-kindness to it. Uh, But it's easy for self-judgment to come in when, when difficult emotions arise or experiences. And if we want to bring loving-kindness or self-love into this, what we do is we bring a pure witnessing attention that has a love quality to it, to a specific part of the universe. Me. <laughs> you know, so you bring your, that energy to body and mind, you know. Uh, and the connection means that we've taken the mother cow, that's the pure witnessing part, and the, the baby cow, and you bring them together within yourself. Mother cow, baby cow, that's holding yourself. And we learn to hold ourselves through a lot of experiences that we didn't get held through in our life. That's the practice of metta. And also, I just find that mindfulness is so included in this. It's like if you don't have the ability to have that pure detached witness, we tend to say fear arises. If you connect with it without detachment, usually, even if you go into the body and you notice the thinking, there's a tendency to get just totally caught up in the thoughts. And we drown. We connect, but there isn't a witnessing. 
And like I said before, if there's a, a, if there's a detaching from the fear, for example, we might be, you know, like kind of really detached and out of the body and looking in, uh, but we're not connected. You know, so the, ex- the instruction around emotion or difficult experience is to ground the attention with the body, maybe have a relationship with the breath so that we have a connection to something neutral, but also to really have enough detachment to notice the thoughts coming and going so that we don't get caught up in the fear or the panic. And then the other part to that is to bring a care, a love. So you bring the mother cow and the baby calf together and there, there wouldn't be fear. You know, there wouldn't be so much fear because you'd have this holding of the fear. Or the fear might be there, but one isn't drowning in it. When we disconnect, what's it's interesting is that we really are not knowing what we know. <laughs> it's that simple. We aren't knowing what we know. And we do this in relationships. We do this with ourselves. It's like this, even though <laughs> there's a part of us that knows, we won't let ourselves know what we know. We disappear. So we skip over the difficult emotion, or we don't acknowledge what we're really feeling. And it really means that we, we aren't interested in the difficulty. We're not interested in the pain. And when I um, explored this a little more uh, recently, I was seeing that, what do I need at this point when it's like that, when I'm disconnected? Well, I need and want me. And then what is that me? You know, we ask that question again in the, in the meditation. But that really is, again, when you say, well, what do I need? I need and want. You need the mother cow and the newborn calf to come together. Or we'll disconnect. And just that ability to come together, you'll just slip into the mindfulness. Meaning, you'll be able to know what you know. So that's where the mindfulness and the loving-kindness can come together, where the balance of connection, holding, and also witnessing come together. And there's a feeling, I think, when that happens, of, of great composure. So that being human is workable, you know, even if there's longing. There's great composure. If there's fear, there's great composure because we're not leaving. We're connecting through that connection and detachment. When we can't do this, I think sometimes it's really helpful in terms of the loving-kindness to connect with other beings. I happened to go for a walk, a pre-sunrise, in my neighborhood in Honolulu earlier this year. And it's a time of the morning that I don't tend to be um, walking out walking. It's not my routine. And I think I had to pick someone up at the airport. There was some reason why, oh, I can't remember why, but I was out there. Uh, And it was almost dark, and the the pink in the sky started to come in. And I was walking up to my usual places that I walk later. 
And there's two little, it's quite urban, but there's two little mini teeny, you could, they're, they're called parks, but you'd hardly recognize them as parks. They're sort of like a, an empty lot, you know. <laughs> they're like, there's one empty lot and then another empty lot, and there's a little sign that says park. <laughs> I don't, it's really funny, you know, the world. <laughs> and so I was going by this one park, um, and these two really old men, you know, were just driving off. And I was wondering, I wonder what they're doing. Then I got up and walked up to the next park, and they were just pulling in. Uh, and I, they were kind of shy, and I just kind of walked by them, past them, to kind of look out um, at this nice scene that I walked to. Uh, and then I w- stood there for a while and noticed them from a distance, could see they were doing something. Uh, and this was a really old, beat-up car, and you know they look, you know, very scruffy. You know, like that they've had a heart. They're having not an easy life. Um, so I just kind of slowly walked up to them and hung out, and they slowly started to trust that I was okay. And I noticed that they had all this bird seed and bread, old bread, in the back of their car, and they were feeding the birds, and one of the men looked up to me, and he had tears in his eyes, and he said, you know, these birds are our family. You know, and it was, I felt so privileged, like so lucky, that they felt safe enough with me to tell me that. Um, and this is what they do. I talk to them a bit, and every Every morning they go out and go to these little empty lot parks and feed the birds, and that's their way of feeling loved and loved. A flower opening is often a metaphor for a spiritual awakening. And one of the Buddhist sermons, you know, he w- it said that he didn't say anything for that sermon, but he just held up a flower. And one of, you know, the people in the audience got enlightened because he understood uh, what that meant, this opening to life as it is. And when we open, like a flower opens, we don't get to just pick what we open to. You know, it would be great if we got to, you know, open to the good stuff and not the hard stuff, but we open to the range of joy and sorrow in the world. And this is hard for us to accept. It's like we want to open, and yet the truth of life is that there's this range of joy and sorrow. And then sometimes we get impatient and we want to pull the petals open. And again, you know, what happens when we pull the petals open? the flower dies. Uh, So that what we're doing is developing enough protection of mindfulness and loving-kindness. That's the protection, the strength, to face the range of joy and sorrow in the world. And the more that you develop those, the more that there can be this capacity to open. And it's important to know that we we can be fluid with it. We can open and close, and open and close. And it's not a failure to need to close or detach. There's the connecting, there's the detaching. 
my father went into the hospital this uh, spring and died in July. Um, and it was kind of um, uh, he's quite a angry person, just <laughs> you know, just kind of off the top, violent temper, angry type. Um, and when my sister died before my dad recently, you know, we had some time to, I think, clear out a lot of karma. I mean, it wasn't easy. We had, you know, we had kind of a difficult childhood, and we took a lot out on each other. And toward the end of when she died, it was just this gradual, we didn't talk stuff out, because that's not what you do in my family. Uh, <laughs> forget, forget the talking business. But um, we did just gradually, I think, heal through just <laughs> being <laughs> together. Um, and when she died, it was just like it was cleared. It was amazing. She left, it was clear. I mean, it was not, it, of course, I miss her. And the kind of last converse, the last two conversations were really, you know, that there was still some attachment, but there was just the love. The, the, the conversation before she died, you could still feel like us holding, and then the, the last one, it was like free. Um, with my dad, it was completely different. And it was interesting because I had this idea that since my, my sister it died this way, that my father possibly could open a little bit and <laughs> maybe heal <laughs> like one teeny tiny bit. But, you know, he stayed in character. Um, so that's, I could tell you a million stories about this, but uh, toward the end, my father was very inconsistent in what he was asking for and what he would actually act out. So he kept asking for all the life support and all this and all that, and he didn't want to be kept alive, but he couldn't understand the consequences of what he would say versus what they would do. So every time they came into the room to do something, he wouldn't let them. But it was like, I used to have to take care of the doctors coming out of the room. It was that bad. I mean, it was like, there was one guy, like this huge, tough guy from South Boston, the kind of t type I grew up with, and he, he came out of the room like, <laughs> just in shock, and he said, I can't believe you grew up with this guy. <laughs> and they were always coming out wanting me to control him, you know, and they were kind of tying him down, and like, you know, I'd go in, and he'd rip them out, and he'd be screaming, and one neurologist came out, and he was like, <laughs> I said, are you okay? <laughs> and he said, extremely combative, you know. <laughs> It, it was really, it was, he went out with gusto, you know. Um, <laughs> but anyway, there's many, many stories of what that was like. But um, at the end, you know, it turned out that I was managing to try to mm, choreograph this so that he wouldn't be a vegetable in the nursing home for the rest of many years, which I knew he didn't want. Um, but I had to stand up to that anger and stand up to that anger. And there was a physician, I got my dad into Mass General because I knew if I didn't, I wouldn't be able to choreograph any of this. And he hated me for that. He wanted to die in Framingham. Now, Framingham is where he grew up, which was 20 miles from Boston. 
<laughs> and I don't think he'll ever forgive me for <laughs> moving into Boston. That's another story. <laughs> um, so there was this internist that's sort of the head teacher. You know, these, these hospitals are hard to um, figure out how to talk to anybody in charge anymore. And this one guy would sort of float through, you know, every couple days, sort of, you know, all, you know they're elusive. <laughs> I learned to tackle them. You know, you kind of tackle them. And I got to know Dr. O'Malley <laughs> quite well. And I kept having to point out, because my father asked for everything, but he didn't want anything, I started to point out the inconsistencies in his words and behavior. And finally, I mean, I was getting at my wit's end, and he finally came one day, and he put his arm around me, and he said, I don't want you to have to bear this burden alone anymore. I mean, it was such an incredible gift. It's like, and he totally took charge. He totally took charge of, of having what needed to happen, happen, and when. And then my family finally had to come in, which is, um, you know, <laughs> the fundamentalist Christians, the atheists, the agnostics, you know, the sort of Christians, you know, I mean, you know, and then. <laughs> the Buddhist. <laughs> and I knew that if we didn't have some sort of conversation about the end, that, you know, we were going to have a lot of preachers in there, you know, and it was going to, it wouldn't be what my dad wanted, but I, you know, I knew I couldn't um, look like I was choreographing it. And the hospice people came in, the palliative care people came in, and this they sent this one man because we had to decide when to pull everything and when to let him go. Uh, and I knew this was going to be hard for my family. Uh, so I just sort of stayed in the background and um, my family all went ahead and this doctor came and he happened to be a Tibetan Buddhist. <laughs> but of course we didn't tell anybody that. <laughs> and we were sitting in a circle uh, and he was incredible. He was so quiet but so kind, and he went around the room and he asked everybody how they thought my father should die at the end. He listened to every single person, but he took charge. And it went, when they went, got to my sister, she started sobbing, and she said, you know, I just, I can't understand why my father had to suffer like this. It's like he really, it was really bad, you know, the wounds on his legs, and I won't go into it, but it was, it's, I think it's the worst physical suffering I've ever seen. And she just was crying and crying, and then he waited, and then he said, he got born. And it's like, even the most, I don't know, it's like the people in my family that I feel like are the most difficult to kind of get through to were just stunned. Mm -hmm. It was like it was so true. You know, there was no blame. There was no, oh, bad karma, good karma. Like, it was, it was just that he got born. And everybody calmed down, you know. And then my uncle just said, you know, your dad, you know, my brother, his religion was being kind to people when they were hurting. You know, and it was. In the outer world, he was very kind to people that were hurting. And uh, his religion was kindness, and he's not going to want a preacher to come in his room. Uh, and then everybody just accepted it, out of that place mm -hmm. of touching the truth. You know, and this is where 
you know, it was like it was my family's shining, you know, moment. <laughs> it was like really amazing that finally everybody came together and there was this balance of love and detachment. So I'd like to um, encourage you to keep holding the paradox of this. You know, at times you'll feel like you're connecting, and it'll feel like we drown, or you'll feel like you're detaching, and you're getting indifferent, or in denial, or repressing, and then at times it'll come together, and you'll understand. You know, and it's worth it. It's, you know, it's we go out of balance, and then we'll find balance. We'll go out of balance and find balance. And it's really worth this effort. It's worth everything. So I'd like to end with a um, a light, carefree kind of poem. It's from a a Chinese Buddhist monk, um, Shi Tei. I'm not sure what century it's from, but it might be the 11th or 12th century. I climb these hills as if walking on air, body too light to fall, bamboo staff resting against a great stone, torn cloak snapping in the wind. A lone bird soars the azure depths, far distant springs reflected in its eye, carefree, singing a timeless song, gone on a journey without end. So let's uh, sit for some moments and appreciate this journey we're all on, this journey without end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.